in general, with respect to air power, I think it has been incredibly important to this conflict, but not in the ways that we typically assume or think about it from a Western perspective. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Later in the program, two top Washington air power, defense, and wargaming minds help us review the past year in the air over and around Ukraine since Russia launched its illegal and unprovoked invasion one year ago tomorrow. And we'll have this week's top headlines in global air power. And it's all made possible by GE Aerospace, from America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine. GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn more about its latest innovations at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and as we mentioned, GE Aerospace sponsors our air warfare coverage. And check out our other weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security and hosted by the resonant and well-modulated Mr. Vago Maradian. JJ, what's the news this week on All Wings Considered? As we go to press, a bombshell announcement from Boeing, one that's been expected for a while, but we now have the confirmation the F-18 production line is now scheduled to end in 2025. That'll leave the T-7 and the F-15 in the St. Louis factory, at least for now. We don't know what else is coming along. But the Hornet and Super Hornet line, which has been kept alive by congressional ads the last few years, is finally within sight of closure. This will obviously be a huge topic on the Defense and Aerospace Report Business Report this Sunday with Ron Epstein, Richard Abalafia, Sash Tuza, and Vago Maradian. In other news, it appears that Iran is moving into the modern age with their jets. If you've pitied those poor Iranian mechanics who have to keep F-5s and even occasionally F-14s flying, Pity no more. It appears that Russia will be sending Iran Sukhoi 35s. Let's not forget that Iran is supplying remotely piloted aircraft to assist the Russians in Ukraine, and that the words quid pro quo mean the same thing in Russian and Parsi. And China's aircraft salesman made quota this month as the UAE announced an order that's been coming for a fair while now to equip their air force with AVIC J-15 jet trainers. Something of a breakthrough for Chinese platforms in the Middle East. They're starting to find markets other than Pakistan for exports. Finally, it's no secret that the U.S. Air Force has been looking at advanced concepts for tanking and transport. And this week we learned the Air Force has actually let contracts to study autonomous cargo aircraft operations. If that can be made to work, it would make a lot of sense. Not only does it reduce the hazard for pilots flying into front areas, and unlike tanking, where the autonomous platform has to interact with manned fighters, cargo aircraft can do their business independently and even airdrop supplies with no ground crew interaction. So it really seems like this would be a natural fit for the Air Force's agile combat environment concept. Oh, and of course, Aero India was this week. Not a lot of military news coming out of that show. And Vago, I'm sure you'll cover the rest on the business podcast. By the way, did you remember to send your Kelly Johnson's birthday cards? I, I, uh, I, I did not, but uh, please tell the audience. 
Well, the greatest aircraft designer in history, and sorry to all you R.J. Mitchell and Ed Heineman fans, was born on February 27th, 1910, so there's still time to get to the post office. Or, or at least say a happy birthday, Kelly, and thank him for all he did uh, for the nation. And uh, thanks C-130 uh, and U-2 as two products that uh, are still in service uh, that was so uh, intimately shaped by him. By the way, I feel no sympathy for Iranian mechanics, even though I'm impressed that they can continue <laughs> uh, to fly those airplanes uh, and get up to no good uh, with them. And I certainly think it's some very powerful messaging, isn't it, by the UAE to show hey, um, we're not going to be entirely dependent on Europe and the United States for our armaments. It really is an interesting move on their part because, frankly, the J-15 doesn't bring anything in capability to the table that can't be had with uh, any number of Western trainers. So this was a very conscious decision on their part, it appears. Uh, indeed, and we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about it uh, on tomorrow's podcast as well, what kind of messaging uh, Abu Dhabi is uh, sending the United States, Europe, and indeed uh, the world with this move. And joining us now are two expert observers on air power and a number of other defense topics. They're both senior fellows at the Center for a New American Security, Dr. Stacey Pettyjohn, who directs uh, the defense program at the think tank, and Becca Wasser, uh, who leads uh, CNAS's gaming lab. Guys, an absolute pleasure having you both back on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Really excited to talk. Uh, indeed, an absolute pleasure. And as I joked uh, with your boss, uh, Richard Fontaine, uh, he joined us yesterday and we're having CNAS week. So you guys are joining us today and tomorrow. Uh, the inimitable Jim Townsend will be, uh, who's a regular part of our Washington Roundtable, will be joining us. So it's terrific to highlight uh, the great work you guys do. You guys came on the program about a year and a half ago to discuss the evolution of air power since uh, the Gulf War. Uh, we now have another, uh, unfortunately, very consequential, uh, more complicated, uh, more deadly and dangerous war uh, that we're coping with, more than 200,000 casualties just on the on the Russia side uh, of the equation, and a very significant number, and indeed about 8 million or so Ukrainians uh, may have fled uh, the country. Everybody looking at this conflict for what it means uh, for future conflicts, for deterring China, and if that fails, uh, fighting it. What do you guys see as the most significant lessons of air power in Ukraine as the war approaches its first anniversary? And what, from your guys' perspective, have been the biggest surprises? There have been a lot of surprises. And I think that one of the most uh, startling ones is just how poorly Russian forces performed in the beginning of the war. But in general, with respect to air power, I think it has been incredibly important to this conflict, but not in the ways that we typically assume or think about it from a Western perspective. And in part, this is due to some of the, the context of this particular war, in some ways how it's constrained. But it's also just been dominated by the fact that we've seen ground-based air defenses playing a really significant role in the shape of the overall air battle in terms of whether and how fixed-wing aircraft can be used and um, uh, other types of capabilities, whether UAVs um, like the TB2s that the Ukrainians famously used in the beginning to interdict maneuvering Russian forces as they tried to race to Kyiv and were able to do so because the Russians didn't have their ground-based air defenses on. And over time, we've seen less of that. So you don't see, you know, TB2s really flying around too often on Twitter anymore because many, many of them ended up getting shot down. Aircraft have continued to be flying on both sides. 
But for a while, as uh, Ukraine dispersed its air defenses and has this nice layered system, they forced the Russian aircraft to fly at pretty low altitudes um, where they weren't particularly effective. Mm -hmm. Most of the attacks that we've seen have been against fixed targets. Um, they don't seem to be quite as adept at dynamic targeting. And uh, it seems like their targeting process is even more slow than the glacially slow ATO on the American side. Um, and they don't pass information quickly enough to actually hit fleeting targets that appear on the battlefield. Now, as Ukraine's air defenses have started to get uh, attrited, you're seeing that some Russian aircraft, because they have more of them, um, the Ukrainians have their sort of dwindling Soviet-era fleet, and they've been outmatched largely in a lot of the air-to-air -air battles, that they're being able to push in at high altitudes and hold at risk different targets that they weren't earlier. So the battle has been evolving at the higher altitudes. That's not even to mention the low altitude, what we've seen with you know, the commercial off-the-shelf UAVs or drones. Yeah, I think there's a few different things that, you know, we can take from this conflict and what it might mean for future conflict. Obviously, looking at the way that Ukraine has been able to integrate uh, multiple domains, the way that it uh, that, frankly, we're seeing not only commercial off the shelf air power in the form of drones, but we're also seeing the ways in which commercial space has influenced this conflict as well, particularly if you're looking at the role that Starling played, uh, which has been very beneficial to some of Ukraine's uh, targeting efforts. But I think probably the biggest thing for me is it's just really hit home how difficult it is for any side and any actor to gain air superiority. And oftentimes when we're thinking about conflict, we're thinking about, okay, gaining air superiority is step one, right? That's why there's seed deed. That might not be sort of the step one of future conflicts because it might be a goal that is too hard to attain. Mm. And if that's the case, we have to do a lot of thinking about how we perceive future conflicts and how we're going to prepare for them as well. One of the more energetic debates coming out of this war is the future role of helicopters and battlefield close air support. Japan announced recently that they were retiring all of their attack helicopters in favor of uncrewed platforms, in part because they didn't see rotorcraft as survivable in a modern air defense environment. Others say that advances by ground forces are impossible without that kind of support. Is there enough evidence coming out of Ukraine so far to support either of those sides, or is it too early to say? I think it's really mixed right now. You know, there have been limitations on uh, the ability of Russian rotary wing aircraft to be used effectively. But from some of the anecdotal things that I've heard and like the Rusi study that came out, they talked about how they weren't even deploying their defensive countermeasures uh, effectively either. So some of this is hard to discern what is operator error and what is something more generalizable and indicative about how the airspace um, will be denied in the future or not. I mean, manpads have obviously had a really big effect on the battlefield and been a really effective tool for the Ukrainians that have helped them to deny or at least make very dangerous flying um, in low altitudes. But, you know, they can run out of missiles 
And there's, um, they can't necessarily be everywhere all the time, which is one of the challenges with the ground-based air defenses. Where do you put these scarce assets sometimes? You have to move them around to keep them alive. Are you gonna protect your forces when they're launching some sort of offensive? And if you move them there, does that tip it off? Or are you gonna be using them to defend strategic assets because you have Russian uh, drones or loitering munitions, the Iranian belt Shahed-136 or Duran-2 coming in and going after civilian infrastructure? Like all things in this conflict, I think we should be very cautious about extrapolating what we see while we need to be studying it and looking at it in real time and trying to identify the important lessons. Um, it is really important to be mindful of the ways that this conflict would differ from potentially other ones that we are concerned about and preparing for, and the ways that um, some of the things that we have seen on the battlefield are really due to the specific context that they're in. Like Becca mentioned Starlink and how important it has been for the Ukrainians. In a big war with either the US and Russia or NATO and Russia or the US versus China, it's hard to imagine that commercial space might not be denied or attacked in one way or another, not necessarily kinetically, but um, that has not been disrupted because the Russians have you know, set certain boundaries that they're not crossing just as the West and NATO have set certain boundaries on the types of support that they're providing to the Ukrainians. So need to really sort of pull apart each thing uh, and look at it and then um, consider it in different contexts through analysis and more gaming. And we're going to pull on uh, those uh, threads and also what this means for China in a minute. I, I just have a follow-up to this. Um, the Russian Air Force is much larger than the Ukrainian Air Force. Why isn't it that the Russians are throwing more capability at the Ukrainians? ultimately, right? I mean, I, I see them not using more of the air power that they have available, ultimately, to greater effect. Why is that? Do we know? So not a Russian expert, um, but from what my understanding of how Russian forces operate is that it is more siloed and deconflicted than integrated in the way that the US military does and certainly aspires to with things like JADC2 or all domain operations. And typically if the Russians have their air defenses on, which they started doing after a few weeks into the war because they realized that was a problem not to have them active, they don't fly fixed wing aircraft uh, right around there. They don't operate at the same time because deconfliction is too difficult. So some of this I think is due to how Russian forces plan and prepare to operate. And many of their forces aren't nearly as proficient in some of the things that American forces are very good at like aerial refueling, especially you're not gonna be doing much aerial refueling to fly far into Ukrainian airspace, which is, contested, if not denied in certain areas. So I'm not sure what the answer exactly is, but um, they definitely have not employed their Air Force in a way that the U.S. would. Definitely not as the U.S. would, and definitely not at a broader scale. 
and across Ukraine in the way that I think folks initially expected to see, especially in the early phases of the war. What I think we have seen is Russia trying to use more of its air power in some more localized contexts, right, over some of the areas that they tend to be doing uh, heavier fighting over, like in the Donbass. I think that's where we see the preponderance of Russian air power more so than anything else. It just looks very localized and therefore quite different from how we usually think about how a military would employ its air forces. And then they've used non-traditional air power, right? Uh, the loitering munitions or the drones, and then a lot of cruise missiles to go after those deeper targets, but they're not typically focused on deep military targets. Mm -hmm. They've been focused on the civilian ones. Um, and their proficiency at using some of those systems, in particular the cruise missiles, has been not great either, um, though the loitering munitions seems to be doing better, though uh, Ukrainian air defenses are doing quite the good job of actually intercepting many of those that come in. Again, it's just a space problem. There are too many locations and that need to be defended simultaneously. Absolutely. And the other thing that I'll just add, and this is pure conjecture on my part, but I think quite often we have this sense of, well, Russia is performing terribly in Ukraine. They're not learning lessons. I think we actually need to take a step uh, step back and look a little bit farther back and see actually some of the lessons that they learned from their air operations over Syria. A lot of the airdropped uh, bombs, frankly, very terrible barrel bombs and unguided bombs uh, that they were using in Syria, they were going after civilian targets. What I think we've seen is a bit of an evolution of that. They're just not using air power to go after civilian targets to achieve some of their broader strategic aims that are in support of its military objectives. Hey, let me follow that up a bit because we asked about the Russians, but they're not the only ones who seem to be holding back in the air. Each side seems to have decreased its use of combat air power through the course of the war. Is Ukraine now an air stalemate? I mean, in some ways, I feel like it it has been this area of mutual denial or stalemate, though Russia certainly has the numbers on its side. While the Ukrainian Air Force was small and fairly antiquated to begin with, and as that is whittled down, they're, they're left at a disadvantage. You also have to think about getting spare parts. The Ukrainians, they're flying Russian aircraft. They're probably not getting any additional spares. <laughs> so maintenance um, and upkeep over time have to be increasingly difficult. I don't think they're necessarily holding them back, but you've seen Ukraine as it's realized that um, munitions and platforms um, are not necessarily something it can count on having an unconstrained number of that they're metering them out, especially the uh, more high-end systems, which I would consider fixed-wing aircraft. And uh, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian government have been on a strong campaign to get Western-made aircraft. And we heard the British prime minister announce that they were going to start training um, Ukrainian pilots soon, but there has been no announcement on what or if there are any aircraft that would actually be provided to them by a NATO member state. Um, so 
Ukraine seems to be trying to conserve what it has and then angling to get a future fleet where it will have more plentiful spares and munitions than, uh, and be just better qualitatively than what they currently are flying. So that that's part of the things to factor into the equation as well. Yeah, and it most certainly remains to be seen whether they're going to get the advanced air power that they've been asking for. You know, I think one of the reasons why you've seen the UK really focus on pilot training is because it would just be such a difference in um, requirements for some of the uh, more capable platforms that Ukraine has been asking for. Uh, I hosted an event last week, two year, two weeks ago. I mean, time just flies. I wouldn't be able to tell you. Uh, uh, <laughs> Celeste Wallander, Dr. Celeste Wallander, who's the Assistant Secretary mm-hmm. of Defense for International Security Affairs and both Europe and Russia falls under her portfolio. And I asked her specifically about some of the calls for uh, advanced air power, specifically F-16s. And her answer to me really made it sound as though Getting those more advanced capabilities and preparing the Ukrainian uh, Air Force for those advanced capabilities, that was more likely to happen after the conflict uh, had come to a fold. And she specifically said whether that was through negotiated settlement or whether that was from Ukrainian success against Russian uh, forces. But she made it sound as though that was a much longer term defense capability that would potentially be coming uh, down the pipeline, uh, not something that would be immediate. That said, we've heard a lot of different uh, talk from different parts of the government, so it remains to be seen. And I would add, um, I spoke to Minister Heapy from the British government, and he was saying that, you know, it's good and it makes sense to start They're They're going to be start training Ukrainian pilots which are not in as high of demand because they've lost so many aircraft right now. And it makes sense to start to train them on Western platforms before you actually make the big announcement that they're getting something. So I think there is some sense to that sequencing of what is might be occurring or might not, depending upon whether op- optimistic or pessimistic. But I think it's important to think about the fact that it is really difficult And from what I've heard from prior research, looking at former uh, Warsaw Pact countries transitioning from Soviet aircraft to American-made ones has been a hard transition. And they've actually found, for example, with the Poles, that it was easier to train new pilots than to transition them into an F-16 um, because they just uh, the they had you know ingrained such a different way of operating a very different platform. So the Ukrainians are certainly motivated, and I believe that they can and would apply themselves and learn as much as they could quickly. But there are real barriers there and differences that even though they can fly, flying the modern fighter aircraft of today that NATO has, any of them are really advanced platforms and machines, not just an aircraft. There's a lot that goes into that. So the first guest on our program was uh, Air Force Secretary Kendall uh, some weeks ago, and he made the same point Celeste made, right, that the United States would be providing these airplanes uh, after the conflict as opposed to doing them now. But not to put my air power zealot hat on, we are in this stalemate conflict because one side has not achieved air supremacy or air superiority or air dominance over the other one. And so you're in trenches slogging it out. Um, There are a whole bunch of systems we could be employing 
uh, if the Ukrainians had the right kinds of aircraft and the right kinds of munitions to uh, deal, to suppress, as uh, Becca, you said, right, you use the seed word, suppression of enemy air defenses. I, I guess the question would be, and anybody who's flown a 16 knows it is a remarkably, I mean, it's not taking any way from Viper drivers, it is an easier plane to operate. Obviously, mastering the combat system is a little bit more complicated. But ultimately, what is the kind of air power that the Ukrainians need? Uh, there are folks who make a case that A-10s could go over there and could be very much more supportable. Uh, Gus uh, Guastella joined us a couple of weeks ago. You know, We talked about whether Mirages or Gripens would be better uh, suited. Uh, we have armies of MQ-9s that are mothballed uh, that could end up being put to good use uh, for a, in a variety of different ways, right? Moldering in the boneyard. Ultimately, what, how do we need to be thinking about this problem? Because air power can singularly make the difference in this conflict, and it's as though we are metering it. We do not want to give it to the Ukrainians, and then figuring out all sorts of reasons why it sort of wouldn't work and why we wouldn't want to do it. I mean, many people were calling for this to happen in last April to make sure that there was a cadre of aviators that was that was trained and ready to go. If you guys, you know, if they did ask and and we could wave a magic wand. What's the kind of air power that the Ukrainians should be getting from your guys' perspective? Manned, unmanned, Martians, laser beams. I mean, I, I candy do, bombers. I, I do. Uh, I am sympathetic to the argument that some uh, capabilities, like initially, there was so much urgency in trying to give the Ukrainians what they could use immediately. And to be fair to the administration, the amount of aid that we've provided is pretty extraordinary. But at the same time, I do think sometimes we have placed uh, unnecessary artificial constraints on what we are willing to provide. I'm not sure the A-10 would be the best given the air defense environment. I mean, maybe if it's flying really uh, low, but that might be a sporty proposition, which would lead me to say that, you know, unmanned systems where we can accept that if they get shot down, and especially if they're things that the U.S. is looking to otherwise retire, it just seems sensible to um, uh, give them to the Ukrainians because while they might not survive, be perfectly survivable and be around for years, they can provide important, play important roles uh, for a certain period of time because nothing is going to survive uh, forever in a war of this sort of magnitude and intensity. I have heard the grip and argument, and I think there is something to have, you know, potentially not as pristine of airfields as the U.S. Air Force likes to fly from, having something that's a little bit more rugged um, being useful, but I'm not sure beyond that. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it really, there's something to be said for that, but I think there's also something to be said for what the U.S. has really doubled down on, right? It's doubled down on things like air defenses. It's doubled down on, you know, counter UAS uh, capabilities. Um, and again, those aren't the sexy parts of air power, but those are the things that are actually key components of trying to ensure that Ukrainian forces are able to survive and fight in this environment, but also particularly for um, you know, air and missile defense, that's also what's needed to protect uh, Ukrainian civilians from some of the indiscriminate attacks that we've seen from Russian forces, particularly Russian missile attacks, 
and part of what Ukraine's going to need as it seeks to think about the future and a future and where they want the, where they're going to have to rebuild the economy and they're going to want you know Ukrainian citizens to eventually come home. Those are going to be all key components of that as well, and they're they're just a core part of what's needed in the airspace, just not the things that we think about. Well, let me follow up on that because uh, also Stacy mentioned the air defense environment earlier. There are folks who are saying that air denial is its own strategy and that it might be something that the U.S. should look at adopting as a competitor to air superiority or air dominance. Is that a strategy relevant for the U.S. or is it more a niche capability for particular kinds of conflict? Let me turn that question back on you. What do you mean by air denial? Because I've heard it used in a few different ways. The way I hear it uh, being argued is that you essentially build your air force to be defense dominant. Mm -hmm. You emphasize things like uh, air defense capability rather than trying to meet the opponent in the air or outclass them with your aircraft. You emphasize your missiles, your defenses against their aircraft. But I'm not one of the people who's trying to make that case. I think the two are inextricably linked, and that's something that the U.S. Air Force has been really reluctant to admit and has only come to that conclusion reluctantly over time because of the threat to air bases, especially in the Pacific, but even in the European theater, though that is a very different threat, but also in the Middle East. So, um, you know, the Air Force has been asking the Army for ground-based air defenses and to make that a priority, especially cruise missile defense. And in our system, the roles and missions are divided between different services, which has created a tension there and I think some sense of resentment. I do think having perfect, uh, complete air superiority or supremacy is something that will be really difficult against a great power adversary. And that um, whenever I see really smart blue air-minded players in war games, they're looking about creating bubbles in which they have air superiority in time and space and where they can project power so that they temporarily can move forces in and launch attacks. You absolutely need air, air power to be offensive. Um, but I think the, the ground-based air defense part is something that the U.S. military has uh, woefully neglected and much to its potential detriment if we were to get into a war. And if you're looking at the ways in which future conflicts could unfold, it really does speak to the need to have these networks, these integrated networks of air and missile defense, right? And it's not just within the U.S. military, we're talking with allies and partners. And, you know, we all talk a big game about, you know, integrated air and missile defense, but true IAMD is very, very hard to achieve. And it's something that, frankly, we are not good at and our allies and partners are even worse off at doing. So thinking a little bit more about the ways in which we can actually build integrated air and missile defense networks in Europe, but also to a lesser extent in the Indo-Pacific is incredibly important. But you know that gets to some of the broader issues that we find when we're trying to uh, build networks of multiple countries, which is usually political sensitivities and sensitivities towards information sharing, let alone some of the more technical elements of it as well. So let me take you guys to uh, the question of China and which of these lessons are applicable 
to sharpen our game uh, against the Chinese, whether in deterrence or on the war fighting uh, side of the uh, equation. We have dispersal where the Ukrainians, uh, once we started giving them the intelligence, did scatter their forces. So not as many of their airplanes were caught on the ground where it is they thought they would be caught, right? Air and missile defenses were scattered. Uh, so they were able to maintain, uh, even though there has been attrition, as you said, Stacy, and very sad and an unfortunate attrition, uh, they managed to keep a lot more of their airplanes, a lot more in the fight longer than, than folks uh, expected. From your guys' perspective, what are the most important lessons uh, across the piece on the man side, the unmanned side, the munition side that you think are, you know, policymakers need to be bearing in mind? Um, I think there are several, I'll, I'll throw out a few ideas. A, I mean, the munitions piece is huge. Our stockpiles are woefully inadequate of high-end munitions um, that would be needed for a war against China. And we need to begin to actually prioritize those investments along with the platforms, which has traditionally been um, the focus. Uh, Hannah Dennis and I had a report out um, looking at PGM buys in last year's budget. And it's the number of anti-ship cruise missiles in particular that we're buying is just uh, woefully inadequate. In addition, I think when you look at the drones piece, it's more complicated. And this is an area where I think unmanned systems are clearly going to play an important role in the Pacific because China's investing a lot in them. But we're going to see different systems and them potentially employed in a different way because a lot of the shorter range UAS, whether the TB2, certainly the commercial off-the-shelf drones or the Orlan that the Russians have employed, I'm not sure that they would be as effective in a war in the Pacific, given the geography and the distances involved. They're not going to have the endurance to uh, play the role that we've seen in Ukraine. So unless it's the Taiwanese are using commercial off-the-shelf drones as a part of their effort to spot targets that are, you know, out of their personal visual range for uh, rockets or missiles, I don't see them being as ubiquitous and potentially as important. Longer range aircraft, maybe higher altitude unmanned systems, there, there are different um, areas that they could get involved. And this is something that I'm actually studying right now. I'm in the midst of doing some historical research on recent wars and then going to be running a war game to think about it in the Pacific, uh, given the different geography and capabilities uh, that would be needed there. And of course, CNAS is known for having a very strong gaming game. Uh, are you doing any work based on the current conflict in Ukraine or trying to see how different U.S. weaponry might affect things there? What can we look forward to coming from you on this? Well, I think what you can probably look forward to is uh, testing, road testing some of our lessons learned and seeing how they might actually apply in the Pacific in particular. I think, you know, trying to quote unquote war game out current conflicts, it's very difficult because the situation on the ground is a adapting and changing so rapidly. You find yourself needing to update things 
you know, on a daily basis, if not hourly. So it, you know, if you're looking at things from an operational perspective, which is looking at some of the weaponry and things that you've mentioned, that tends to be really hard to do. What I do think uh, there's a few different things that we could uh, be uh, looking at is really some of these broader strategic questions, um, but that's not something that we're doing at the moment. I think moving forward, if we're looking at some of our lessons learned um, and how these might apply to the Indo-Pacific, I wanna pull out two in particular and then sort of end with a caveat, if you will. So the first one is, um, Ukraine suggests that we need to do a better job of preparing for protracted conflict. This is something that our colleague Andrew Metric is going to be looking at and looking at the ways in which a protracted conflict in the Indo-Pacific could play out and the implications uh, for U.S. defense strategy and operations. Uh, the other thing is the importance of logistics, right? Logistics has just been a critical component of what we've seen in Ukraine and the ways in which we actually probably need to bolster how we do logistics and our preparedness for conflict, right? Some This could be something as ensuring that we have enough fuel, enough pre-positioned stockpiles of munitions, of critical supplies. And if you are trying to take some of our lessons learned on logistics and apply them to Taiwan, it becomes really hard. Ukraine is land, it's, it's, it has neighbors. You can get to Ukraine by land. Taiwan is an island. So trying to do critical resupply, particularly of, uh, you know, Taiwanese ground forces would be incredibly difficult. And, you know, our colleague Chris Doherty has been on this uh, emphasis on logistics for quite some time. I think he's got a report coming out on that, that I think is definitely something that folks should look forward to. And then I promised that I would end with a caveat because that is just me. I think it's really important to note that there's almost two sets of lessons learned. There's lessons learned for the U.S. military, which are going to differ wildly from the second set of lessons learned, which are for Taiwan, right? And what those look like are just vastly different. So sometimes we tend to conflate uh, lessons that Ukrainian forces have learned um, and say that we can apply those to Taiwan. Per Stacey's uh, earlier comments, you know, I think it's important just to remember that a lot of these are context specific and what played out in Ukraine might not necessarily be uh, what would play out in the Indo-Pacific. That was a very thoughtful observation, uh, Becca. Um, but let me just very quickly, right? I mean, one uh, follow-up question, and I know we're at time and you guys uh, have to run. But we're dealing with, again, the contested logistics problems, right? I mean, uh, you know, Joe Biden can't take a train to get to Taipei in order to give this address. So you're absolutely right. We talk about agile combat employment, uh, agile basing. But in a hypersonic age, in an era where if you can see, you can strike with precision, right? I mean, have you guys done wargaming on it, experimentation on it, research on how viable any of these strategies are? Ultimately, I mean, aside from telling the force, hey, listen, we're going to, you know, one out of every two squadrons is going to get shellacked on the ground. I mean, that's a hard thing to tell your force. I mean, uh, Stacey, are, are you? Have, yeah, have, no, no, this is a really good question. It's really hard, right? And it costs a lot yeah. of money. We have to buy redundant capabilities. Right now, uh, not every uh, squadron, right, has enough maintainers that you could just 
disperse and operate in different detachments. Um, so you need more people, you need more supplies, you need more spare parts. Um, and then you're going to need uh, security forces on the ground, more air defenses, fuel bladders, the whole kit and caboodle um, to operate in a distributed fashion. Um, but it depends where you are. And I think it can make a difference. This is something Becca, Andrew Metric, and I wrote about in War on the Rocks and our piece on the Kadena conundrum, where we made uh, the point that Kadena is so close and Okinawa as a whole, that that is a different intensity and level of threat that they faced and surviving there in the beginning phases until some of those uh, ground-based ballistic missile stockpiles have been depleted is not something that I would count on. When you move farther out in the first island chain into the uh, Japanese bases on the main islands or into the Philippines and then farther, you know, China has limited stockpiles of these weapons. They are way more than what Russia has, but the IRBMs, the MRBMs, they still are very expensive and they're not reusable air power. So once they're gone, they're gone. And when you have a bunch of different locations that you can be operating from and where no one of them is such a lucrative target that it actually allows you to really critically disable and sometimes permanently if you hit the aircraft, U.S. military operations, um, it, it does pose a lot of dilemmas uh, for the adversary, and I think it will give them pause and make them wonder whether they can achieve the type of uh, advantage that they really need to and want to in a first strike. And being able to generate that combat power while under attack really is um, critical and I think doable, but it will be expensive and it's going to require a big departure from the way that the Air Force has tended to operate for the last few decades. Thanks so very much for joining us, Stacey and, and Becca. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so very much. Thanks for having us on. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Air Power Podcast, and be sure to tell your friends. A special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week. <laughs>